The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. In 1864, the Shenandoah Valley once again became the focus of conflict between North and South as United States forces led by Philip Sheridan defeated Confederate States forces under Jubal Early, not once, but again and again at Third Winchester, Fisher's Hill, Tom's Brook, Cedar Creek, and perhaps most surprisingly, after the war in the battle for historical memory of the Shenandoah campaign. We'll learn more about this tonight from Daniel T. Davis, co-author of Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864 on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the East Carolina University campus here in Greenville, North Carolina, where it's a cloudy, gray, overcast day in September of 2015. And I'm not speaking for the university, not representing anyone but myself. My guest, likewise, will do the same. We're all on our own hook here at Civil War Talk Radio. It looks like it's fixing to hurricane at some point. I don't think the weather's actually predicting that, but it's been all 
humid and cloudy and threatening for a day and a half now and maybe something big will happen we'll find out maybe by the weekend we'll know it's of course autumn and that means it's college football season here on the campus of ECU. The Pirates were sunk by the Navy Naval Academy team last weekend for the third time in a row playing Navy in their triple option, which I believe should be made illegal uh, because it's too clever. Uh, Just doesn't go well, and and ECU scored a lot but could not stop Navy once. my home team, the University of Michigan, however, won. We can continue to see the new Harbaugh era underway. And the game we've all been waiting to hear about uh, in Pitt, Greenville, uh, Soccer Association, local action. My club, Greenville FC, played to a 2-2 draw with last year's champion, Missouri Foggers. And I got to play a good 20 minutes of that game before I was completely exhausted. But there were a lot of us to fill the role of the three geezers, who must, gals or geezers, must be on the field at all times. That allows old people like me to play with the young folks out there. And we had about six of us rotating in and out uh, over 45 or more. Uh, went to the doctor this morning, and he was a little bit alarmed, but uh, I'm still uh, eligible to play. On campus here... Uh, Good and bad things are happening. I guess that's true in any part of the world. Tomorrow, our board of trustees meets to get an update from uh, several people, including me, on our proposed historical exhibit, a heritage hall is the uh, name for it they're using, which will be a place where we can study our history in some detail rather than simply put the names of old dead guys on buildings especially when, as it turns out, those old dead guys are are becoming more and more uh, suspect. The case in point here at uh, ECU, as as many of you remember me discussing in the past, was uh, Governor Charles B. Aycock from the turn of the century, the 20th century. His belief in education was a good thing, but his belief in white supremacy, not such a good thing. And ECU was... I think, fortunate and far-seeing to get ahead of the curve in challenging that because just last week, North Carolina's legislature, uh, which no one would mistake for a PC institution or a hotbed of liberals, voted to remove Governor Aycock as one of North Carolina's representatives in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. So if the state legislature thinks it's time to revisit Aycock's views that it's time to revisit, and uh, you see you got ahead of that game, I'm happy to say. So I'll be talking with them about that. On the other hand, since you're going to read about it in your paper anyway tomorrow, uh, the headlines locally, turns out a uh, professor here on campus has just been indicted for uh, obtaining property under false pretenses. The media, getting it wrong as always, has headlines, Professor Steals Money, while he accepted his salary while not doing his job, and in that sense, acquired property under false pretenses. He didn't hold anyone up. He just kept drawing his pay while, I don't know what he was doing, vacationing or something. He's in the medical school. He's a doctor, so he was already making four or five times what many of the rest of us make. Uh, In fact, to to obtain, uh, it said in one year, $37,000 of unearned salary, 
some of my colleagues would have to sit out half a year, an entire semester to get that much. Some of my non-tenured uh, fixed-term colleagues would have to go an entire year without working to amass that much money in in uh, value of money in unearned time. But uh, nonetheless, it's not good for anyone when that kind of thing happens. And uh, uh, well, you'll read about it, draw your own conclusions. People will assume, oh, that's what all professors make. Uh, trust me, the med school is a different world altogether. Well, history is also a different world altogether and a much more congenial one. So let's get back into that. Uh, well, let's start with the future. What are we going to talk about next week uh, as we continue exploring America's Civil War past? Next week's guest, uh, Professor J. Matthew Gallman author of Defining Duty in the Civil War, Personal Choice, Popular Culture, and the Union Homefront. be talking about what people are doing behind the lines. And the week after that, October 7th, we'll have Betty Brennan, president of Taylor Studios, Inc., talking about what happens behind the scenes at history museums when firms like hers help build exhibits for the Lincoln Heritage Museum in Lincoln, Illinois, National Civil War Museum, and other places uh, we'll get a, a peek uh, into what's going on there. October 14th, Thomas Hurd Robertson Jr. will be sharing his edited journal, Resisting Sherman, a Confederate Surgeon's Journal and the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. Uh, still scheduling the 21st. Got a couple people uh, waiting to hear from, but that should work out well. Then on the 28th, Wade Sokolowski returns to the show. He was with us last a few years ago. He has a new book called To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. Uh, maybe it's the sesquicentennial, but we're, we're doing the 1865 thing a couple weeks there. And on November 4th, uh, another return guest, Christian Semito, will be back. Chris has a new book called Lincoln and the 13th Amendment. Uh, one looks squarely at that development, uh, dramatized in the movie Lincoln, but we'll hear a scholarly take on that. should be good. And you can find out what's happening on all new shows from impedimentsofwar.org, the website that tracks what we're doing here at Civil War Talk Radio. Mark Gaffney keeps that up. He also keeps up the Impediments of War page on Facebook, another place to learn what's going on. You can go to the website, impedimentsofwar.org. You can gently move the mouse about your desktop until a pointer rests on the PayPal button and click upon it and then enter some large number and you'll be sending money directly to me uh, for my use to buy more books for the show to pay my Organization of American Historian dues uh, to simply buy more paper for the printer or whatever else I might need at home, or perhaps take my long-suffering wife, Emily, out to dinner. Uh, all these are possible and more because it's not a 501c3. It's not tax deductible. I can do whatever I want with your cash when you send it. And thanks for those who have. Well, this week we're looking at 1864 and the Shenandoah Valley campaign of that year, uh, I'm holding a book called Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864. It's written by our guest tonight, Daniel T. Davis and Philip S. Greenwald. Uh, Phil was on the show with us, I think, last year. Uh, he has co-written other books. 
This is a book in the Emerging Civil War series from Savas Beatty, who have uh, contributed a lot to Civil War scholarship recently. And it's a uh, pleasure to have Daniel T. Davis as our guest tonight. Mr. Davis, are you there? I am. Good evening. Thank Welcome to the show. You. Glad Thank to you. have you. Uh, do you go by Dan? Is that, is that acceptable? Danny? Daniel? Dan uh, is fine. That works. Call me Jerry, please. Uh, keep it simple. First question, Dan, who picks titles at Savage Speedy? Because I'm looking at Bloody Autumn, and I'm looking at the catalog, Season of Slaughter. It looks like a slasher film catalog more than uh, uh, scholarly history. Uh, does, does Ted Savage do this, or do you guys do your own titles? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, Chris Mikowski, who's the editor, leaves it to the authors to pick two or three catchy quotes or just in general come up with a good title. Bloody Autumn was something that Phil Greenwald, my co-author, and I came up with. Um, but you mentioned Season of Slaughter. I believe that is actually a quote from a surgeon in uh, the Sixth Corps, the Army of the Potomac. Well, I, I don't think there's any shortage of good historical quotes that do that, but it's uh, uh, I, I don't think there's a uh, I think there's a positive correlation between sales and the the uh, gore quotient of the title. Just that's just the way the world is. It's neither here nor there. But uh, uh, anyway, moving on from that, uh, I'd, I'd pit you with a hardball for opener. I don't mean to do that. This is in the emerging Civil War series, and as, as I said in the introduction, this is a. Uh, part of a whole new wave of Civil War scholarship going on. And I'm curious how you got involved with this series and with uh, this uh, uh, writing this particular book. Sure. Uh, I knew Chris Mikowski and Chris Wade, who were the founders of the Emerging Civil War, through working at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. And one day out of the blue, I got an email from Chris Wade uh, telling me that him and Chris were starting a blog, Emerging Civil War, and would I like to write for the blog? And uh, I, I said yes. I wasn't working uh, at, with the National Park Service at the time, but I was still out tramping the battlefield, so I thought it would be uh, fun to share my experiences, if you will, uh, on the battlefield and correlate those over to uh, the blog. And things sort of just took off from there. Uh, I think uh, Emerging Civil War has really grown into something that uh, none of us really envisioned it would be um, five years later with uh, the partnership with Savas Beatty and the uh, book series. Um, the Shenandoah Valley campaign, uh, especially in 1864, is I think a little bit more interesting than Stonewall Jackson's campaign in 1862. Uh, on a number of different levels. I think the first and foremost, it's fought in an election year. It's a fought not only in an election year, but also it starts late in the summer, early in the fall, and as the day the days are getting closer and closer to when the people will go to the polls. And it's interesting from the perspective that the re-election of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln in 1864 
was not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. The North was tired of war. They were growing weary of war. And the Valley campaign is fought right before the election. It's fought right up and uh, right up to and almost until many of the Union soldiers are casting their uh, ballots in camp uh, after the what becomes a final battle in the campaign at Cedar Creek. It's the last thing that the northern populace is going to have on their minds when they go to the polls. Well, the, the, we had John White on a, a couple of weeks ago talking about the soldier vote in that election, and, and certainly you're absolutely right. It's not a done deal that Lincoln is going to be reelected. But by the time the Valley campaign is going, Atlanta has fallen, and uh, Farragut has gone into Mobile Bay. So, and you also have a number of people who have already voted because the states don't have to vote in November. Some of them vote earlier. Uh, so, it, when I when you you made that point in the book that this was uh, the election was still hanging, initially I was skeptical, but I, I guess there is something to that. That, that you think if there had been a, a substantial Confederate victory, that might have swayed enough voters to uh, yeah. see the war as a failure. I don't. I'm not sure it may have swayed the voters, but I certainly think it would have made them made them think twice, if you will. Um, I, under, uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, obviously, Atlanta has fallen, uh, but Virginia, it seems, within the northern mindset, it's always been the focus point of the northern populace it, it, uh, because mm-hmm. the, the two capitals are there. And the valley is a place that's almost uh, taboo, if you will. Uh, there's been so much disaster there for the Union forces both in 62 and in 1863 uh, during the Gettysburg Campaign, the Second Battle of Winchester, that it's almost taboo to send a Union army back into that region again uh, just because of the, the hanging pall from what Jackson did there just a few years earlier. So I think there is a focus on, from uh, the northern home front on the campaign. And it it certainly, I think, probably would not have helped Lincoln's chances in some uh, in some regards. Well, I, I think there, that there's a lot, too. That's a good point also about the, uh, the valley itself being a place where Union armies go to get defeated uh, by Stonewall Jackson, as you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. And for it to happen again would, uh, it, I mean, it's all hypothetical to, to speculate on, but it certainly would not have done Lincoln's chances any good had there been a stunning Confederate victory at this point when the northern public's main question is, is this war successful or not? Well, what we're going to do is explore this campaign itself in some more detail, but first we're going to take a short break and come back in just a minute. Tonight we are talking with Daniel T. Davis, co-author, along with Phil Greenwalt, of the book Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Dan Davis, author, co-author of Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864. Uh, Dan, before going further, you mentioned uh, you'd worked at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. Uh, you mentioned Chris Mikowski and others. That place seems to be a hotbed of young people in the Civil War. Uh, uh, trying to think of the right word. Racket is not the right word. Business, industry, none of those are correct. Um, but a lot of, of, of public historians and authors are connected with that institution. Is what What is in the water there that uh, has brought so many of you to, to this field? That's a great question. Uh, I, what brought me into that field was the mm-hmm. internship program that uh, that is run there uh, by the uh, supervisory historian uh, Greg Mertz. And uh, Greg has, I think, a knack of finding those folks who are incredibly passionate about the subject matter who enjoy working with their peers who are equally passionate and as well as working with the public so i think over the years he's done a just absolutely an absolutely fabulous job of cultivating uh, that talent uh, uh, bringing those folks in getting their feet wet and then sending them out into the world if you will to uh, do good work in in the field of the civil war well, that has certainly been a successful program, and, and all credit to him for doing that. So the campaign of 1864 in the Valley, the person in charge on the northern side, uh, as our listeners I'm sure all know, is Philip Sheridan. But you point out Sheridan was not necessarily uh, the only choice to run that campaign. How did he get picked to lead the Union armies? 
it was really a question, I think, somewhat of elimination. Uh, there was some talk, believe it or not, of bringing back uh, former Major General George B. McClellan, the one-time commander of the Army of the Potomac, uh, to command the forces in, in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, at the time, McClellan was uh, running a campaign against uh, the sitting president, Abraham Lincoln. It would have uh, certainly been a way of removing an opponent uh, to a certain degree. Uh, however, uh, McClellan's success uh, had been very limited, to say the least, when he was uh, the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, the General-in-Chief, Ulysses S. Grant, then put forth uh, George Ward Meade, then the commander of the uh, Potomac Army. But Lincoln was uh, and had been under uh, some pressure to have Meade removed uh, from command. Uh, Meade had, uh, in the eyes of Lincoln and uh, Chief of Staff Henry Halleck, had not performed up to his capability uh, going back to after uh, the Battle of Gettysburg the previous summer. And Lincoln uh, passed on Meade because he did not uh, want to make it look like he was giving into political pressure just a few months away from an election. So then Grant put forth Phil Sheridan, who was a very curious choice. Uh, Sheridan, up until 1864, had been an infantry commander, uh, for the most part, in the Army of the Cumberland. He had fought uh, exceptionally well at Stones River, uh, again during the Siege of Chattanooga and Missionary Ridge. Uh, Grant brings him east to command the cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and up until that time, Sheridan had only uh, very limited experience with cavalry. He had uh, commanded uh, briefly earlier in the war the 2nd Michigan Cavalry. So uh, to put Sheridan uh, in to command was sort of a curious choice on Grant's part initially. And Sheridan had a, an incredibly difficult time handling the cavalry corps. He uh, he had a very stormy personality. He clashed with George Meade over the initial use of the cavalry. Um, Sheridan wanted to use them as a combat arm. Meade wanted to employ them in their traditional role of scouting, uh, screening, and reconnaissance. And Sheridan did not have a good record in the spring of 1864 during the Overland Campaign. Uh, he botched the Army's movement into the wilderness. He... Uh, Clashed with Meade uh, again uh, during the march to Spotsylvania, which resulted in uh, Grant sending him southward uh, during uh, on his uh, raid toward Richmond, which resulted in the uh, Battle of Yellow Tavern, which killed Jeb Stuart. And even after uh, the Richmond raid, uh, Sheridan still had uh, problems. Uh, he clashed with uh, his peers. Uh, his second raid that uh, spring and summer, uh, which resulted in the Battle of Trevilian Station, uh, was turned back by the uh, Confederate cavalry. It was a complete failure. So putting Sheridan into command of an army when he had not proven himself at the core level was, uh, it was an interesting choice on Grant's part, but uh, Sheridan was sort of a Grant lackey. Uh, Grant had a fierce sense of loyalty uh, to those around him, to those in his inner circle. Fortunately for Sheridan, 
he was in Grant's circle, and to Grant, he could do no wrong. So we we tend to view Sheridan through hindsight, through his success in the Valley and his aggressive uh, actions in the last months of the war, when he's back with the Army of the Potomac. Uh, but you're suggesting he was not neither uh, the logical choice or maybe even the best choice. Uh, what about the Confederate leadership? The Confederate leadership, uh, I think, is a proven commodity. Jubal Early had proven himself and had steadily risen through the ranks based on his performance and uh, his experience. He had fought well at Fredericksburg. Uh, he had, was a member of the old Second Corps, Jackson's Corps, in the Army of Northern Virginia. And he was a man that Lee had called upon uh, during the Overland Campaign uh, to uh, step up whenever, uh, whenever and wherever he was needed. Um, early, I think, was a much more competent officer than Sheridan was at that particular time. Nonetheless, when the campaign opens, they, they fight a battle at Winchester, the third battle of Winchester, uh, and the, the Union forces win. They fight another battle at Fisher's Hill, same outcome. Uh, eventually they fight again at Tom's Brook, same outcome. Uh, Sheridan is, is beating early like a drum, but you suggest early might have been a better leader. Is this this just a matter of numbers then on the uh, on the union side? I, I think it's a little bit more than just the numbers. Uh, Grant sends Sheridan to the valley loaded for bear. He <laughs> sends with him the Sixth Corps, which arguably at that time was probably the best combat corps in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he sends the 19th Corps, which has just uh, been shipped east from the Western Theater, but he also sends Sheridan with two divisions of cavalry. And at that point in time in the war, the Union cavalry had undergone a complete transition from their traditional role to a combat role, a role that Sheridan had initially envisioned uh, them having. Uh, when he came east uh, to take over uh, command of the Cavalry Corps from the uh, with the Army of the Potomac. So Sheridan has some top-notch soldiers um, at his disposal. Uh, he has some excellent division commanders, excellent brigade commanders, uh, and by that point in time, the early uh, core of his army, the uh, the backbone of his army, is. Uh, the old Second Corps, Jackson's old command, and they've been depleted with casualties. They're not the Second Corps of 1862, of 1863, and I think they're just, they're overmatched. Mm -hmm. So Sheridan has the advantages on that front, uh, but you point out in, in some of these battles, he doesn't perform particularly well. For example, at uh, uh, Winchester in the first battle, uh, you describe how he leads troops through uh, uh, the, the Berryville Canyon to get to the battlefield. Uh, 
that's a piece of Civil War terrain I have not visited. Is it really a canyon, and, and was it really a mistake to try to funnel the Army through there? Yes, on both counts. It, it is consi- it's a very deep ravine. You can still drive through it today. Modern Route 7 runs uh, through the Berryville Canyon, and even mm-hmm. with um, some modern houses, uh, even with the work that's been done on the modern highway, you can still get a sense of how steep uh, uh, the sides are. Um, his main, Sheridan's main advance uh, was headed by the Cavalry Division under uh, James Wilson. And Sheridan's uh, premise was to get through the Berryville Canyon as quickly as he possibly could. He was banking on Wilson clearing away the Confederate pickets and Confederate infantry, supporting them to get through the canyon as quickly as he could, uh, and clear the way for the rest of the infantry to get through. Unfortunately, what happens for Sheridan is that Wilson is unable to brush aside the Confederate infantry, and that does two things. One, it slows up the Union advance, but it also gives Jubal early time to get his men into position to block Sheridan's advance. So the, Sheridan's initial offensive grounds to a halt early in the morning. When Sheridan eventually gets his men up into line and ready for battle, he sends the Sixth Corps forward in a westerly direction toward Winchester. But what he can't see is that there is a bend in the Berryville Turnpike, modern Route 7, mm-hmm. that causes a gap to open in the Union line. The Union troops are guiding on the road, and Union forces south of the road bear off to their left, while other troops continue forward. It creates this huge gap in the line. The Confederates counterattack, push toward the gap, and almost blow open a hole, a much larger hole, in uh, Sheridan's line. Uh, but uh, quick action by uh, a Sixth Corps commander, or division commander named David Russell. He sends his division up, and the line uh, stabilizes, and Sheridan's able to avert disaster there very early on uh, in the battle. So, uh, not not to his credit, but to his good fortune, he's able to survive that fight. Um, the his forces win again uh, shortly after that at, at Fisher's Hill. They fight another battle, and uh, in in both cases the, uh, the Confederates are forced to retreat. So that this is all happening in September of 1864. Uh, by the end of the month, Sheridan is master of the valley. Then, what most folks think of, I, I would imagine. Uh, uh, who know something about the Civil War when they think of this Valley Campaign as the scorched earth policy of mm-hmm. Sheridan. Uh, can you talk about how that worked? Did he really uh, burn everything so a crow would have to bring its own rations if it flew overhead? He came very close to doing that. What Grant recognized is that the uh, Shenandoah Valley was 
a prime resource for Robert Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And Grant decided that he would have Sheridan, if Sheridan had the opportunity, to go after those logistics, burn the crops, kill the livestock, uh, just so they could not be put to use by uh, the Confederate Army. And after Fisher's Hill, in late September, early October, after Sheridan's army had reached Harrisonburg, Harrisonburg being at the time, and still is to date, to a certain degree, a very lush area, a lot of farms, a lot of uh, resources for uh, the Confederate Supply Department, Confederate Commissary. So Sheridan begins a systematic destruction of the crops, livestock, uh, anything of value, essentially, that can be used by the uh, Confederates. And then Grant actually wants Sheridan, when he's completed, when he's completed this mission, to chase early, chase after early, early since withdrawn eastward out of the valley, and he wants Sheridan to push on after Early and finish off Early's army. Instead, once Sheridan uh, finishes the destruction around Harrisonburg in the area to the south, he turns back around, marches north, and continues the destruction as he makes his way back toward Winchester. The uh, the destruction going north actually made sense. I- when you think of it, uh, if you imagine early, or imagine Sheridan just sweeping uh, southward through the valley, burning everything as he goes, then, then he ends up deep in Confederate territory and nothing for him to eat. Uh, so it makes a lot more sense to do the burning while you're heading back uh, back to the north, as, as was the case. So there's another battle uh, as, as the two forces, as, as Sheridan moves north, and early uh, follows after him somewhat cautiously. Uh, the cavalry units skirmish. Uh, there's a, a fight at Tom's Brook. Uh, the Union wins that. It's mostly cavalry there. The uh, uh, You point out the Confederate retreat becomes known among the Union troops as the Woodstock races, uh, as the, the Confederates have uh, flee the battlefield, ultimately. And that leaves the situation in the valley so much in Sheridan's control that he's able to contemplate returning uh, the 6th Corps back to the Army of the Potomac. Uh, so this brings us uh, to close to another break, but also to an appropriate breaking point in the campaign because uh, it gets us to the climactic battle. And what we'll do is take another short break. We will come back and talk with our guest, Daniel T. Davis, co-author of Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864, and find out about that climactic battle when we return. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking Today with Daniel T. Davis, co-author of Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864, and we talked in our first two sessions about uh, the campaign up through October of 1864, Union victories at Winchester and other places, but the undaunted Jubal Early continues to press uh, Sheridan's northern forces and uh, prepares a, a counterattack. Uh, this is the, the Battle of Cedar Creek, October 19, 1864. And so that we have time to talk about it, let me uh, uh, cut to the chase in this battle. Many people have read about it. They know the initial attack is successful by the rebels. Why doesn't the rebel attack uh, roll up the Union line that morning? Why, why? Let me start. Why was it successful, given that, that the Confederates are outnumbered, and why isn't it more successful? I think it's incredibly successful in that Sheridan lets his guard down. He mm-hmm. has become convinced after the Battle of Tom's Brook, uh, the cavalry battle uh, we talked about a few moments ago, that Early's army is defeated. Uh, and that complacency, that sense of complacency, I think, starts to spread to his his commanders. Uh, Sheridan leaves the Army uh, to go to Washington to confer with Secretary of War Stanton on future operations. And he's left his line in a somewhat vulnerable uh, position. His left flank is very uh, thinly manned. Uh, it's headed by George Crook in the Army of West Virginia. And early, uh, upon executing a reconnaissance mission, 
uh, finds that to be the weak point in Sheridan's line. So he sends a flanking force around the Union left and completely shatters and rolls up the Union line. Uh, you might be able to argue that Jubal Early did more in the morning of October 19th at Cedar Creek than Stonewall Jackson ever did as far as his success in uh, collapsing uh, the Union position. Why it's not successful is because of a stand that is made by a Sixth Corps division commanded by George Washington Getty. Getty is a veteran soldier. Uh, he has seen the worst of the war, but he's probably that person you want in that place at a moment of crisis. And as the Confederate attack continues to roll up the Union line, Getty positions his men in the Middletown uh, Cemetery. Uh, these are all veteran soldiers. And Getty's able to make a stand in the cemetery while that buys time for the rest of the army to retreat northward and reform. And Early launches uh, several assaults against that position. He butts his head against the wall, and eventually that wall does crack. Getty is eventually driven out of the cemetery, but he, again, has bought enough time for the rest of the Union Army to reform in a new position. By the time the Army's reformed, Sheridan has arrived back on the field, and he launches that famous counterattack that eventually pushes Early back to the south, uh, below uh, Cedar Creek, and reclaims the Union camps and the Union position. When, when Early fails to push the attack, um, you point out there's some dispute over whether that's Early's decision or Gordon's decision or some other Confederate general. Uh, do you have a view on, on why Early does not keep pushing? I think his men, when it comes down to it, they're spent, they're tired. Uh, they've been engaged for uh, uh, all day. Um, and they're not, uh, they don't have the supplies that the Federals have. They're hungry. Uh, and there is some dispute between Early and Gordon about the, and this will be, continue to be uh, disputed, and I'm sure amongst the Civil War community in years to come, that the Confederate officers lose command and control. They let the men uh, pillage, run through the Union camps. It takes men out of ranks, and it, uh, and it depletes men from the attacking formations. Um, whether or not that's on Jubal Early, John Gordon, Early has control of the field. I think responsibility would have to lie with him, but there's shared responsibility, too, in his subordinates, such as Gordon. Gordon's an experienced officer. He should try to maintain uh, discipline at all times. But I think it's important to remember is that Early and Gordon didn't, get along. They were not the best of friends. Uh, they hated each other. And 
when you have two people who are so partisan going against one and uh, one another and he said he said situation is very difficult to get down to a kernel of truth one factor that you don't emphasize much as to why the union recovers is maybe the most famous element of this battle uh, Sheridan's ride uh, Sheridan's off uh, conferring with the union government and comes riding down the turnpike and, and rallies the troops and turns the Union defeat into a victory, or at least that's uh, that's how many of us learned it. Uh, did that not really happen, and, and why do so many people know it that way? Well, it, do, it does and it doesn't. Uh, Sheridan... Uh, certainly a very enigmatic character, a very, uh, an incredibly stormy personality, but he knew how to motivate men to battle. He knew how to motivate people to do their jobs. Now, by the time that he did arrive on the field, the Union Army had reformed. But Sheridan provides that spark. He has that lightning strike. He rides up and down the line. Uh, encouraging the soldiers, uh, motivating them. And it's that extra boost of motivation that helps them later on in their counterattack. So there is some truth to that story. Uh, but, and we get that story, as you mentioned, we uh, learn that story from a poem that I believe is written in the early 1870s by a fellow named Thomas Reed called Sheridan's Ride. And me, Reed appeals to the myth of Phil Sheridan. After Sheridan has become a national hero, after the war has ended, and it helps uh, to boost Sheridan's reputation in our view of him today. And it it does the same for Sheridan's horse too. He's a real hero in that poem. Uh, you know, I have brought you Sheridan all the way from Winchester down to save the day. Uh, that, that's a that's quite a horse. Uh, so one of the points that, that struck me in, in one of the appendices of the book where uh, you and your co-authors talk about this is that uh, there's that phrase, the, the winners write the history. And of course, anyone listening to this show is well aware that the lost cause interpretation dominated for over a century and the losers wrote the history of the Civil War. But gradually that's changing. Uh, Sheridan, however, was a winner who did write the history, or at least whose partisans seem to have written it. Uh, uh, so is it fair to say that he beat early uh, during the battle and then again after the battle? I think that's fair. Uh, I think Sheridan uh, dragged some people over the coals in the process, uh, unfortunately. Uh, for instance, uh, during the battle of, or after the battle of Fisher's Hill, uh, he takes complete credit for the plan of uh, turning the Confederate uh, left flank, which was uh, actually the plan of one of his subordinates, uh, George Crook. And uh, after the war, uh, men like Henry DuPont, who served with Crook, as well as one of Crook's division commanders, a fellow named uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, were uh, very adamant that Sheridan did not uh, formulate the plan at uh, at Fisher's Hill. Uh, so Sheridan certainly uh, won the battle uh, of words uh, mm -hmm. after the war, but unfortunately it was at uh, the expense of others. 
And, and there's other examples, of course. He ruined Governor Warren's career, uh, you know, at, at Five Forks and uh, uh, others with his, his behavior. So Sheridan, perhaps not a nice guy, but uh, but it's wartime. Let me ask you just a few minutes left a little bit about the battlefields today. Your book includes uh, driving tours of uh, uh, Winchester and Cedar Creek and uh, the Fisher's Hill to Tom's Brook section. Uh, I was fascinated by the photograph in, in one of the driving tours where you show the intersection of Battlefield Road and Battlefield Road at right angles uh, to one another. Interesting uh, navigation problem that would set. But uh, is there a lot to see today if, if I want to drive around these battlefields? There certainly is. Uh, at uh, 3rd Winchester, uh, there's a, a great amount of property uh, that's owned by the Civil War Trust. Uh, they obviously have done just an absolutely fantastic job at uh, preserving the ground there. There's signage, there's uh, walking trails. Uh, at Fisher's Hill, uh, again, the Civil War uh, trust owns uh, the main section of the battlefield. Uh, the ground has not changed, though. Though it, it is uh, parts of it are in private hands. The ground has not changed. It looks exactly like it did in 1864. The same as the Tom's Brook. Uh, Tom's Brook is a battlefield that you could drive through on one of the fronts on uh, George Custer, Tom Rosser's front on the back road. You could drive through it and not even know you were on uh, the battlefield. Uh, Cedar Creek is. Uh, part of the National Park Service. Uh, that property is very well preserved. I know the Civil War Trust is also involved uh, heavily at Cedar Creek. So there is a lot to see. The ground has changed in places, but you can still get a good feel of what the soldiers saw. And uh, apparently there, there have been ups and downs in the preservation movement there. Uh, the, I was struck by the, the image of the, uh, the limestone quarry on one of the battlefields and the, at least the arrangement where instead of just digging the place up and ruining it, uh, there's some cooperation with the, the private owner uh, helping to excavate artifacts. Uh, so, so perhaps there's some private public cooperation going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, uh, well, it looks like uh, just a fascinating place to visit, and one uh, I'm sure many listeners, if you're in the eastern part of the United States and have the opportunity to see the Shenandoah Valley, don't just look at the 1862 sites of Stonewall Jackson, but uh, check out what happened here in 1864. Uh, all kinds of fascinating stories. Uh, another one with barely time to mention, uh, uh, you you have a, an appendix about the executions of Confederate soldiers by uh, by somebody, maybe George Armstrong Custer, maybe by Wesley Merritt, uh, executing some of Mosby's Rangers because they were executing Union prisoners, allegedly. Uh, yes, uh, there is an event that takes place uh, actually during the fighting at Fisher's Hill, and a an officer in one of the U.S. regular cavalry units uh, is apparently shot while he's attempting to surrender by some of Mosby's uh, partisans. Uh, The Union commander, the cavalry commander, Alfred Torbert, then has 
several of Mosby's rangers who have become prisoners, mm-hmm. executed in Front Royal. Now, we know George Custer is there, um, but Mosby insists after the war, after Custer's death, that it was Custer who gave the final order. But we do know today that that is not correct. It was either Alfred Torbert or uh, Wesley Merritt. And in fact, I think we include this account in the appendix that one of Mosby's rangers uh, verified that uh, Custer did not uh, give uh, the order to execute the rangers at Front Royal. He's certainly there. Uh, Certainly did not do anything to stop it, but he did not give the order to execute those rangers. So the... uh, so, so we have a, a controversy there, uh, along with the uh, more conventional Civil War stories. Here, it is a it, just a really interesting campaign. Uh, the book tells it well, uh, well illustrated. The maps are very clear. The driving tours make me want to get in my car uh, tomorrow and go see these places. Uh, so, listeners, if you're looking for a good, concise account of what happened in the Valley in 1864, uh, Bloody Autumn by Daniel T. Davis and Philip S. Greenwald is the book you'll want to get. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Happy to be on. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 